there's thankfully like kind of a movement of like don't apologize for women right now. It's like stop saying you're sorry. You don't have to apologize because you want to live your life a certain way. And I feel like when I was younger, I always thought of that as being kind of like bitchiness. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Jessica Hish about her career after having kids. I noticed it with my daughter when I came back to work after her. Even just posting too much about her on Instagram, all of a sudden, like, all of my client work dried up. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. When traveling, there's almost nothing worse than waking up in a hotel where the only thing available to eat is from a vending machine. Trust me, I know this firsthand. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Kitchen offers European-inspired sweet and savory egg tarts, freshly sliced prosciutto, and signature croissant flown in fresh from France. This space is flexible, offering a communal area to collaborate, relax, and start my day. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. Jessica Hish is a lettering artist and illustrator, and she's designed and released several commercial typefaces. She's also worked for clients like The New York Times, Apple, McSweeney's, the musician Beck, and the filmmaker Wes Anderson. As if that weren't enough, she's also an author. Her picture book, Tomorrow I'll Be Brave, was a New York Times bestseller. She now has a brand new book out, and this one's titled Tomorrow I'll Be Kind. Jessica Hish, welcome back to Design Matters. Happy to be back. So excited. Yeah, I'm really happy you're here. In high school, you waitressed at a Greek diner called the Blue Comet, also known as the Blue Vomit. Um, Do you have any memorable stories from those days? Oh, man. Only kind of sad stories or dangerous stories. Like, one of the things that first came to my mind, which is awful, and thankfully the restaurant is closed and probably shall remain closed forever— But I remember customers would come in and ask if there were any sugar-free desserts, and we offered, like, sugar-free Jello as a thing. And one time I was back in the kitchen and actually saw the packets of Jello that they were calling the sugar-free Jello, and it was definitely not sugar-free Jello. <gasps> oh, my I, God. I was like, oh, my God, we're going to kill someone. And I tried to raise this thing to the management, and they were just like, this isn't your place. You know? <laughs> oh, my. They were like, you're 17. Go away. <laughs> And you did for good. And I did. And I did. It was also like uh, Mike Montero thinks everybody should work in service industries before they are hireable as a person. And I totally agree with that. I do, too. I think if you waitress or ever work in any sort of capacity like that, if you were, I worked at The Gap also for a summer when I was in high school. And I just have so much appreciation for people that work in any sort of industry like that. When I worked at the Blue Comet, we would work I would work the, like, Sunday after church shift, and I would turn over, no lie, 80 to 90 tables, and I would make $85 in tips. Like, so I just have—I'm such a crazy tipper, like, and I definitely am always, like, 20 to 25 percent, and if not, throw a few extra dollars on top. Absolutely, absolutely. I worked 
through college at a joint called Kosher Pizza and Falafel. <laughs> Two and like, great things go great together. <laughs> my, my clothes that I worked in always smelled so bad. I left them out in the hallway in front of that my makes door. Sense. Oh, man. The smell of grease on, like, generic Falafel black grease. aprons is still a smell I can never, never let leave my, my brain. Jessica, you last appeared on Design Matters in 2011, and so much has happened since then for you both personally and professionally. I also found in my research this time around quite a lot more about you that I didn't know from our previous interview, so I get to ask some of those questions, too. So I want to start back at the beginning for a bit. For those that might have listened to our previous episode, these will be different Okay. Historical questions. So you grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania called Hazleton, mm-hmm. and your dad was a dentist. Your mom studied chemistry, and I read that you were raised by parents who fed your artistic curiosity with ample crayons, scissors, and construction paper, and you'd work for hours and hours on end. So what was the young Jessica Hish making back then? Oh, young Jessica Hish was obsessed with anything art-related, and I thank my parents so much because they just gave me endless art supplies. Like, I had, like, really professional pastel sets when I was, like, 10 years old, (laughs) which is awesome because it's not something that I feel like all parents that don't have an art background would do. But I think part of it was just because I was just, like, so well-behaved when I was in my art world. Like, they could just sit me at a table with art supplies and I would be good to go for, like, six hours. The things that I was into, I I don't know, I— Got really into replicating Farside comics when I was in, like, maybe fourth and fifth grade. I tried to make a bunch of, like, pretend comics that were based on similar Gary Larson humor that were, are terrible if I go back and read them. Cause I clearly, so you still have them? I have some of them because my mom was okay at saving them, but it's really funny to read comics by people that clearly don't get the joke in the first place. Um, so it was just replicating the style more so than the writing. And then I also got really into drawing maps of my house and plotting the dog's, like, life cycle throughout the house throughout the day. So it was like drawing battle maps. I got really into kind of drawing, like, battle maps of our house for my brother and I to play with. I was also just a very rule-following kid. I describe myself as being, like, a hall monitor forever. I was definitely, like, a color-within-the-lines kind of kid and didn't do a lot of really experimental drawings. I was really obsessed with trying to draw things realistically and was really proud of myself when I could draw something realistically and felt like I was rewarded for that as a little kid. Now, I understand that you would also abandon dozens of sketchbooks because of one bad drawing. You've given up on courses in school because you got one bad grade and your ability to have straight A's was ruined. So not only were you a hall monitor, but I think you were a little bit of a perfectionist. Definitely. I think the, so the abandoning sketchbooks and courses thing came a little bit later because I feel like when I was in junior high and high school, I couldn't really actually be perfect. I remember there was this geometry class that I took in the in eighth grade or something like that. And the final was to label every country on a blank world map and every capital on that blank world map. Wow. It was so aggressive. And I just crumbled under the pressure. I think I got like a 58 or something. It's like the lowest grade I've ever gotten on anything. And and, and you still remember it quite vividly. I still remember I, it because I, I remember <laughs> just how devastated I was after because I was just like, I'm not smart. I'm so dumb, Lola. You know, and I definitely had that moment. 
And then when I was in high school, I felt like I, I knew that I wanted to pursue art, but I didn't really get a ton of opportunities until the end. And by then, I felt really behind on a lot of things. And when I transferred to public school in 11th grade, you know, public schools have their own system for grades. They had like a all those things where you can get more than a 4.0. So the top 20% of my class had like 4.4s when they graduated. And when I came over from Catholic school, we didn't have that system. We didn't have gifted. We didn't have AP classes. And so my GPA, which was totally fine in the Catholic school, was like 3.8 or some random number. I was like not even in the top 40% of my class because I didn't have all these extra bonus points. Wow. Now, was it true you transferred from Catholic school to public school because there weren't enough art classes in your Catholic school? That's true. You know, the art classes in my Catholic school were sort of blow-off classes. They were fun in their own way because it was a bunch of, like, senior high school football players. Then me and this one other eighth-grade girl named Caroline, who I'm still friends with, and we would take it, like, so seriously, and they would just be trying to prank our poor art teacher the whole time. And then when I was ascending into 11th grade, I was like, okay, great. Now I can really take start taking all these other classes. And they were like, oh, but you still are behind on your math. So, no, not this semester, maybe next semester. And I was just like, fuck this place. I'm out of here. (laughs) In high school, your parents got a divorce. They did. You've stated that this started a fire in you and you needed to become independent as soon as possible to find yourself in your voice. What was it about their divorce that served as that catalyst? Part of it was I think any kid that goes through their parents' divorce at any age sorts of like they see their parents' humanity a lot earlier. You know, your parents are these sort of like omniscient beings when you're a kid that can do no wrong, that are not people, they're parents. And when you see them go through like a very harrowing thing personally, you get to see like a lot of them as a human versus them as just your parent. And it made me sort of like that was really jarring and made me feel like I had to grow up really fast for one thing. And then also just sort of seeing my mom who had put all of her eggs in this basket of just like this marriage and raising kids. And she had really given up her career in order to be a parent. And, you know, now as a parent myself, I see just how much work goes into parenting. It's hard because I think a lot of women don't get a lot of the credit that they should get for the work that they do at home. And I'm not saying that my dad, like, didn't give her credit for that. But it's more just, like, I didn't want to be put in a position ever where I was, like, had all of my eggs in one basket and had to rely on another person's livelihood in order to exist, you know. So I really wanted to make sure that I could make my own way, that I wasn't relying on hand-me-downs from anybody or even now as an adult, like, my husband and I have an amazing relationship and we're very much, like, our money is all our money. It's not yours and it's not mine. But I do feel very protective of my career and and contributing to our relationship and feeling like I never want to be a person that doesn't fully contribute in this financially in the same way. Is that even remotely possible given your success, Jess? That, that I wouldn't be able to contribute? Yeah. yeah, of course. You know, like there's highs and lows in every career. I've been really lucky in that I've been really on top of it. So I say lucky, but it's really I've just been like obsessively on top of I mean, you're really one of the hardest working people in the design business. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is one of the things that I realized really early on was that you can't put all of your eggs in any one basket 
even professionally. So I knew, and I found that out just because I was freelancing from when I was, you know, 23 or 24 of just like there's parts of the industry that dry up seasonally. So I would have to make sure that like I had other things going on. And so I, I always like would make sure that whenever I was working as a freelancer, I, I didn't just have one kind of work or I didn't just have one kind of client. And I feel like coming in as an illustrator versus as a designer, it's a little more normal to do that. Because I do feel like freelance designers have clients that come back to them over and over and over again, and they form these very long-term relationships. But then you also hear about designers that, like, one client goes out of business, and then 50% of their business is gone, and they have to figure out how to rebuild it. As a freelance illustrator, I never have that. I feel like I just go on a bunch of epic first dates. And, like, (laughs) it's just, like, endless first dates. I'm a very, like, non-monogamous designer somehow. You promiscuous designer. Very promiscuous. A very promiscuous illustrator. I've had, of course, some repeaters, which have been wonderful and lovely, but a lot of times by the time they come back to me, it's like an entirely different creative team. And so that was one way of being diverse. But another thing was just making sure that like I had stuff that was making money for me when I wasn't able to make the money myself. So like passive income. Break, passive income, yeah. And so what, what would that be? Clearly the books are one way of it and books are a great but very long-term way of... Very um, long-tail. Very long-tail way of well, making Unless money. you have New York Times bestsellers, then it Even then, be. though, I mean, it, it hit the list for one week and one week only. So, <laughs> but it's been doing really well. But yeah, I mean, it's even if your book does extremely well, it's not enough to replace an, an income or anything like that. You still have to be working. Um, I had other things, like Skillshare has been a wonderful passive income source for me. And it's also been just really helpful for me because I love doing workshops, but I don't have the capacity to do them all the time now because my week Weekends are super precious to me, and I don't want to spend them, like, away from my family. So Skillshare and doing online courses has been a way for me to feel like I can still teach people without actually giving away all of my free time. And that was super lucrative and continues to be really, really helpful. And then I've had a bunch of, like, little royalty-ish partnerships. Like, I worked with Paperless Post for a while. I work with Papyrus on cards, and they do a flat fee plus a royalty, which ends up kind of, like, all evening out in the wash where it's like you get paid what you should have been paid in the first place. (laughs) But the majority of my income still comes from client work, but it's slowly starting to get replaced. And my my long-term goal was that by the time I'm 40 to be making $100,000 a year. I read that and I thought, that's pretty good. That's (laughs) nice. Now, is it true that you got rejected from community college? I did indeed. So what happened? How was that even remotely possible? Well, so... My port- my quote-unquote portfolio in high school, I was super proud of because I feel like it showed a lot of technical skill. Like, I love to draw still lives and things like that. But it was, like, not super conceptual. I never took a proper figure drawing class. I had, like, not a lot of diversity of the, the classes that I took because I really only took art classes um, in the last two years or year and a half of high school. And so when I went for the interview, I had maybe 12 or 13 pieces that I was like, these are my pieces. And some of them were a little like me just geeking out, spending too much time on a colored pencil drawing and without really a lot of substance to it. But my teacher was really... She was just so supportive of me and was like, you have something. You're going to do it. Like, your work isn't there yet, but whatever. And so they came in to to review people's portfolios, and they were like, oh, like— like, clearly your work is, like, getting really strong, but you're not quite mature enough in your work for this school. And I This was community like, college. Yeah, for, for Keystone College. It was, like, 
just a just a step above community. I feel like it's a yeah. And so then I was totally devastated, and I was just like, I'm never going to be an artist. They won't even take me here. How did you end up getting into Tyler School of Art in, in the first place? Then, well, their admissions counselor, um, Carmina Chinchuli, like comes to the school to visit all the art classes because she b- forms relationships with a lot of the bigger Pennsylvania high schools. And my art teacher was such a badass in high school that like her and Carmina were buddies. And so when Carmina came to review people's portfolios and talk about the school and really try and sell people on Tyler, my teacher, Angela Glowatch, she was just like, you should look at this girl. <laughs> like, don't don't look at her drawings of shoes and discount her <laughs> as, as a good applicant um, because she really tries so hard and she's going to do stuff that's awesome. And yay. You said this about your time at Tyler. At school, 20 people are happy to shit on your work all day long, and that's actually helpful because I don't get that kind of criticism anymore. Your feelings didn't get hurt by the criticism back then? You know, I've actually pretty often been able to take criticism as a whole package of, like, thinking about the person that's delivering the criticism as well as the criticism itself. So, like, if one of my classmates was giving me criticism and then I looked at their work and I was like, you're missing the same things that you're saying are missing from my work, I was able to sort of la-la-la about it. But the teachers that, like, I had one teacher, Alice Druding, who's since retired, and um, she was amazing and she was such sort of like a, a mom character in school. And her criticism was like, you're so much better than this. I'm disappointed in you whenever you did something. And you would just be wrecked. Like, I would just die. And then there was another teacher. His name was Paul Sheriff. He's still teaching there. And he was such a hard critiquer. Like, he was the kind of, like, he would, like, burn your work kind of thing. And whenever he was disappointed in something that I did, he just wouldn't talk about it. He Ooh, would just move, that's worse. Oh, he would just move past it and go, we'll talk about this next week. And I was just like, oh, I just totally gutted. And you don't like even though at the time getting criticism is hard and like you're just like all you want is praise. um, You don't realize how important and useful it is just to have an environment in which you can trust the people that are giving you criticism and trying to replicate that as an adult is so difficult sometimes. I feel like early social media was that. And now it's almost impossible to do that on social media just because if you're not presenting, like, your best self, then clients are seeing everything. And, like, it's just such a – there's such a minority of people that actually share messy process. Or if they do it, they have to do it in a way that, like, is a – you know, they really put the the finalized thing first and the process second. That I think if anybody went to something like Instagram for, like, proper feedback – it wouldn't happen. You know, like people would be like, wow, your work's really gone downhill when really you're just sharing the earlier parts of the process of the work that will be good. Now, for people who are acquainted with your outspoken voice today, I think they'd be surprised to know that you've said that you felt like an idiot back then when you were in college for not being able to do self-expressive artwork because you didn't feel like your opinions mattered. Now, you've gone on to state that design allowed you to express other people's opinions and problem solve, which made so much sense for you. So talk about that delta between being able to express your own self through artwork versus being able to express others through artwork or through design. Totally. I think one of the things that is a real sign of maturity as an artist or just as a creative is being able to give yourself permission to do things that you want to do. You know, like, I think we all struggle with feeling like we have permission to do certain kinds of work or that we're allowed to or that, you know, like, 
whatever zone that is is not going to be offended or weirded out by the fact that we want to touch on that because we care about it. I felt that way with the kids' book stuff. Like, I've always been interested in kids' books, but I couldn't give myself permission to make kids' books until I had children because I wanted to sort of understand the space more. And when I was 18, I was just really aware of just how little I knew about the world. And part of that was that jump from high school to college where, like, I thought I was hot shit in high school because I could draw, like, really realistic shoes. And (laughs) (laughs) And then I got to college and there were all these amazing young artists that were taking these like college level ceramic summer camp classes from when they were like in eighth grade or something and making large scale inflatable work, you know, for fun when they were 16 or something. And I just felt like such a dummy because here I was thinking that all of art was just me doing accurate drawings. And then like there's this huge world out there. So I felt like I still just had so much growth to do and had so much actual just participation in society to do before I could do self-expressive work. You started drawing letters when you couldn't afford fonts. How quickly did it become apparent to you that this was something that you were good at doing? I think it was like, it's hard to say if it was because I was good at doing it or just because I I liked what it brought to my projects. Initially, it was partially like a budget thing, like I couldn't afford the font, so I would try and like trace and manipulate them and things like that. But then also I started realizing that as I was doing that, my work felt so cohesive because I was doing the illustration. Sometimes I was doing the photography. I was doing photo compositing and all that kind of stuff. And I was doing everything of a project. And there's something that you can do in your work when you're, do- when you're touching every aspect of it. And I think that really made me realize how important, like, the artist's hand is in their work. Because, you know, as a designer, I feel like you lose it sometimes because you are oftentimes working with other people's assets or it's just more hidden. Um, But as an illustrator, I can always tell if I'm trying to exactly replicate something else that someone else has done, I can always tell which one is mine and which one is theirs because I can see my hand in the work. And when I added that to the lettering, to to doing the typography within my work, it just made the entire thing feel so cohesive. And so that's what really, like, drove me into it in the first place. And, and at the time, this was in 2006, 2007, there were, of course, tons of people doing lettering, but they weren't really, like, my age <laughs> And uh, out and about on the internet. So it felt like this weird secret thing that I had discovered. And I was learning about other lettering artists that were much older than me that, you know, were doing uh, a little bit more old school styles or people that were similar in my age and were way experimental. And it felt like this uncharted territory where I could really come in and like do what I wanted to do because I wasn't getting into a super crowded world. You've stated that when you're starting out in lettering, being naive can be amazing because you can do weird things that people with experience do not know how to do anymore. So what kinds of weird things were you doing back then? Well, a lot of it is there's a lot of little mistakes that I would make in my drawings of words and letters that I could not force my hand to make now, but gave a lot of personality and character to the work back then. Things like, you know, like having the weight be on the wrong side of the letter or having like mix and match serifs and stuff being involved in the same thing. Just little inconsistencies from end to end or between the letters that can give it so much personality. There's a lot of sort of outsider lettering people at the time that I was super into. I really liked uh, J. Otto Seibold's lettering work a lot. Um, Seibold, Seibold, however you say it. And Chris Ware, who you had on recently, I was obsessed Mm. with him. But he was super tight and just made, like, amazing lettering work. But I, I really liked people that made sort of funky, like, 
felt like it was almost cut out of paper lettering. And at first, that was sort of the direction that it was all going. And it wasn't until I started working for Louise that things got really tight. And now I can't unsee it. Now, like, I get people that will reference an earlier piece of work that I did as what they want for a campaign. And I'm like, you need to hire someone with 10 years less experience to do this. <laughs> because if you tried to get me to do it, it would feel so forced and stupid. Like, we should only do the stuff that is actually, like, tight and good right now. In school, you got an internship at Headcase Design and then later freelanced. And while you were freelancing, uh, in December 2006, you just referenced Louise. I just want to mention this. Um, You created 250 hand-drawn self-promotional pieces and shipped them off to places that might commission or hire you. And you threw in a couple of idols for the heck of it. And this is a story now that I teach my undergrads and my grads about going after what you want by self-generating something that then you send them in the mail. The only person who called you back from this 250-person hand-drawn effort that you made was Louise Feely. What do you think you would have done had you not gone to work with Louise? I think I would have stayed in Philly and become a freelance illustrator, and my work probably would have been a lot zanier. I maybe would have gotten into children's books earlier because my work was so loose back then. But I wouldn't have met all the amazing people that I met in New York. I definitely would not be in the the position that I am in the world right now. I I think I would still be happy because I'm a person that can be, like, happy in the world no matter what they're doing. But I do think that I would have just been, you know, another person, another creative person just cranking. Yet your first experience in New York, despite the working for Louise part, was actually, I didn't realize this, really difficult for you. You said this about moving to New York. I hardly knew anyone, and I was absolutely miserable for the first six or eight months. I knew it would be amazing and beneficial to work for Louise, so it wasn't a risk in that way, but it did put me hugely outside my comfort zone. There were a lot of moments where I said to myself, why did I do this? Why don't I just go back to Philadelphia where I have friends, where things are easy, where everything's not so expensive and I'm not sick all the time? But you stayed. Yeah. How did you manage to get over that giant obstacle of miserable living? I think, like, I knew how amazing of an opportunity it was to work for Louise. You know, and I and I think, like, if it was for any random job, I probably would have just left and moved back. Moving to New York in February is not something that I would re- – late January, February – not something I would totally recommend to people that are – they, they do love where they live, and they just want to give New York a try. But once the weather got nicer, I lived with a stranger from Craigslist. I lived near McGolrick Park on Green, in Greenpoint, which at the time, it was, like, literally only drunk Polish old men. And now it's like there's cool hip things that are close enough. But, you know, I had a really long commute just dredging through winter in sparsely populated parts of Brooklyn. And it just took a while to get on the same social wavelength as people in New York, too. Like, I do feel like when you move here, one of the biggest things that I tell people is you have to train yourself to always feel invited to things because oftentimes you're not going to be invited. Not because you aren't invited, but because everyone assumes that everyone's doing something else. So, like, a lot of times I would end up at work or something on Monday or, you know, at my studio on Monday after I stopped working for Louise. And people would be like, hey, where were you on Friday for that thing? And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I had never been told about it. And they just assumed I wasn't there because I was working or I wasn't there because I had something else going on. It's easier as an extrovert 
being here because you just have to like up your extroversion and up your ability to talk to strangers and go places by yourself and, you know, do all that. But I could imagine as an introvert, it would be really difficult to sort of get into this social, like a very rich social life of New York early on. What happened to make you less miserable about being in New York? I made friends. I started going to a lot of like AIGA and ADC things, and that really helped. I think too, like I had I had a couple friends that I had made that made it all so much better. I lived really close to actually Jillian Tamaki and, and Sam Weber, and I cold emailed Jillian, being like, "Hey, it says on your website you live in Greenpoint. Can we meet up sometime?" And she was like, "I have no idea why I emailed you back. I would never normally do that, but I did." And we became really close friends, and I would go over to their house and. Uh, you know, we'd watch TV together, and I got sort of integrated into this illustration community because of that relationship. And that's, like, really why I ended up at the Pencil Factory, like, having a, a studio there. Sam had a studio there as well. And I think if it wasn't for the Pencil Factory, I wouldn't have felt so in love with New York for so long. And even now, like, whenever we all get together, we're like, man, that was really special. You know, like, we really know how big of a deal it was that we were all together in the same place at the same time. You seem to be somebody that's extremely self-motivated to make and get the things you want to make and get. Does that come from that early drive after your parents' divorce and sort of being self-sufficient, very intentionally self-sufficient? I think it does. It definitely, that was the catalyst of it for sure. I think it's taken me a long time to sort of come out of my shell as a person. Like, I, you know, if you meet me now, you would never think that when I was a kid I was, like, shy and a crier and super overly concerned with how people thought. And I just worried all the time. I had a lot of anxiety as, as, you know, a kid. And my mom is just like, you didn't seem anxious, whatever. But it's, you know, I was, I'm always a really happy person, but I also would spin out at night and, like, worry about something that I said that was wrong. And it took the perspective of sort of getting out of my hometown and getting into sort of a big place, a place that was much bigger than me, to understand that, like, it's not wrong to ask for what you want. It's not selfish to ask for what you want. People want that. And the example that I give, too, uh, when it comes to that is if you think about when you're trying to make plans to go out to a restaurant with your friends. Like, if there's nine of you standing on a street corner in the rain and someone goes, I really want sushi right now. Nobody looks to that person and goes, you're being selfish for saying that you want sushi. They're just trying to move the move the crowd forward. And if anybody disagrees, then you'd say, okay, fine, let's, let's talk about it and let's do something else. But actually stating what you want is not inherently selfish because you're just putting it out there and then other people can react to it. And then the thing that's important is just how you react to their reaction. How did you get so good at being able to articulate your needs and also saying no? Saying no takes practice, for sure. Because uh, the biggest thing is when the first couple times that you say no, you're like, will I ever work again? Is the, like, uh, the thing. And also, I think there's thankfully like kind of a movement of like don't apologize for women right now. Like stop saying you're sorry. And living unapologetically is something that's really important to do as an adult. You don't have to apologize because you want to live your life a certain way. And I feel like when I was younger, I always thought of that as being kind of like bitchiness, you know, and I think that's like society's fault for training me to think that that's how a woman should be. Like if you are just being assertive, that that's being bitchy now as an adult. And thankfully, because it's 2019 and not, you know, earlier, I feel like assertiveness is not hinged on that at all. It's just about 
you know, you trying to live your truth and, and everybody together trying to do that individually while also thinking of, like, what's good for the crowd. Yeah, I have a sign in my office that I love. It says, um, you say I'm a bitch like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your writing because you are the author of three books. You have a brand new book out now. You stated that while you love writing, the process of doing so was difficult for you given that you weren't formally trained as a writer. How did you break through that barrier and has it gotten any easier for you? Here's one of the things that I struggle with in terms of like becoming educated on anything. I feel like I'm pretty good at connecting the dots on how things work and how to start doing things and teaching myself things. But because of that, I oftentimes get sort of autopiloted by teachers and things like that. So when I was in high school, I got put into a creative writing class, but that was really just like yearbook. Mm. And it involved zero instruction. And it's because my writing was like fairly decent because I had a ton of grammar training in Catholic school. But I never got trained on the process of writing because my writing was always good enough. And trying to get people to push you past good enough and actually realize that you, like, really want a lot of training is hard. And I even found that with my kids' book, with uh, Tomorrow I'll Be Brave, I when I sent off my first draft, they were like, all the only feedback was on the art and there was nothing on the writing. And I was like, the writing is clearly not great. You know, like I've ne- like you need to critique my writing. I need I need you to give me feedback. I need you to tell me what's wrong with it. It can't just be like, oh, this is good enough. Let's move on. And but, it, but was it? I mean, did you, did they feel that it was good enough or well, great? I'm I think they felt like it was good enough just because they knew that the writing wasn't the thing that was going to sell the books. And that's always what I have to work with too when it comes to working with publishers. Is that when people know that you're going to be able to sell a thing no matter what, they don't think about how high of a quality it can be. But Penguin has been really wonderful. I pushed them a lot for Tomorrow I'll Be Kind because Tomorrow I'll Be Kind I struggled so much more with than I did with Tomorrow I'll Be Brave. And when I handed over my first manuscript, I straight up said, like, this is not where it should be. And they were like, well, we think it's pretty good. And I was like, no, it's terrible. You know? <laughs> and and I really had— Hall monitor back in— Better in business. <laughs> well, it's because it was it was passable. You know, it was passable, but it wasn't good. And I just had to, like, work on it and work on it work on it until I felt like it was actually good. And even then, I feel self-conscious that, like, this isn't my normal practice. This isn't the thing I was trained in. Therefore, can I trust that it's good? And it just takes so much positive feedback from other people to, <laughs> to, to convince like, you to convince me that it is. <laughs> Your first book, In Progress, was released in 2015. And that's sort of a mini monograph or a mid-career monograph, but not really. I know you didn't want it to be a monograph because yeah. you were too young to do a monograph. I describe it as textbook light <laughs> slash coffee, coffee table textbook light. Now, I understand that after In Progress, you were dead set on self-publishing whatever you released next. So why is that? And then what changed? So I worked with Chronicle for In Progress, which was a good process. They're amazing with store placement and and they have a great design team and things like that. But one of the things I didn't understand about publishing in general is that like once a book is out in the world, unless you are like a crazy bestseller or a really hot shit author, you don't get a ton of support from the publisher, and it's really on you to help sell the books. I didn't understand that at the time. So I felt like just sort of I was left in the dust after my book was released, and it was all on me to promote it. Even stuff like I was speaking at dozens of conferences and things like that, and the publisher didn't reach out to the conferences to make sure that my book was there. And it's because I didn't have a dedicated publicist. I didn't have like, I didn't have that 
situation set up at Chronicle. And so when I was thinking about making other books, I was like, if I'm going to be the one selling all the books and doing all this heavy lifting anyway, I may as well be the person making all the money on it. And so I was really set on uh, self-publishing, and I was working on Tomorrow I'll Be Brave on my own with the intention of self-publishing it. But then, you know, like anything where you don't have oversight, I was losing steam. I didn't have someone breathing down my neck to get it out. I didn't have a proper deadline. And then also the more I started thinking about it, the more I was thinking like, Maybe self-publishing a design book makes sense because it's going to the audience I know how to reach. But self-publishing a children's book doesn't because my goal is ultimately not to make like a jillion dollars on it, which would be lovely. But it's just to put it in as many hands as possible. And I don't know how to reach people that are outside of design. And as a self-published person, you can't just like call up Barnes & Noble and be like, please put this on your shelves, you know. Um, and so I, I realized how important it would be to work with a proper publisher for it. But I also what was great is that I knew exactly what I wanted out of a relationship with a publisher, which. I think first-time authors would never know. But I went into all of my meetings. I met with seven different publishers, and they were like, what do you want from us? And I said, you know, I want to make sure that you guys are as enthusiastic about this as I am because if I get one ounce of enthusiasm from you, I can blow it back to you as four ounces of enthusiasm or 50 ounces or whatever. I need to make sure that I have follow-through, that it's not just going to be me flying blind for a year after the book is released and that I have support. And that if I notice that it's not stocked at a bookstore, that I can write you and be like, hey, it used to be stocked here and it's not anymore. And they were like, yes, that, like Penguin was the one that felt the most partnery with it. So that's why I went with them. Now, I know you decided to make a picture book for children rather than a creative book for designers. And from what I discovered in my research, you first decided your very first decision about writing a picture book was at the very end of your childhood. You decided that you knew you would be an artist, but before I knew what that meant and how it would manifest, I wanted to make a picture book. Yeah, it's it's always been something that I knew I would do, but I just didn't know when it would happen. Like I made it I made a picture book when I was in college that it was just an assignment for this very misnamed class called Art Direction, where we had to take an existing children's book and re-illustrate it. So I took Aesop's Fables and re-illustrated them, and I titled it like Aesop's Fables for the Dimwitted and Unimaginative. And it's all like hyper explained Aesop's Fables. So instead of letting you interpret it for yourself, it like shows you exactly how it it manifests in your life. And that has to be published, Jessica. That has to be your next book. I'll, I'll show it to you sometime. It actually, <laughs> it's like, great. it's pretty good. Uh, I, I had thought about revisiting it. The only thing is it's a, like a little antagonistic and is maybe like anti my current brand of children's books. But <laughs> You've got range. It could work. But yeah, no, it was really fun. It was also so much closer to the style uh, of like headcase illustration because I was working in like a very flat vector style. And now like my work has gotten so much richer, even between the two books. Like the, if you look at Tomorrow I'll Be Brave and Tomorrow I'll Be Kind, the work has grown so much. Like, the illustration has gotten so much richer and more involved and deeper. And, and like, the character design is so much better. And it's just, like, that growth leap of just even just two years between those projects. Tomorrow I'll Be Brave sought to imbue kids with the confidence to try new things. Can you talk a little bit about the various genres that you noticed in kids' books and how you saw the need for this new one? Totally. So... 
as a parent, I was reading a lot to my daughter, but mostly at bedtime. It was just my daughter at the time. Now I have three children. (laughs) But at the time, it was just her. And there were these sort of like mega categories that I would see in bedtime books specifically, because that was really the only time we were doing a lot of reading because she was uh, thankfully like a very great sleeper in the morning. And then it was just rushing to get out the door. But it was sort of like goodnight inanimate objects books which were all based on, like, the popularity of Goodnight Moon. And some of them were, like, more successful than others, but and they all had a place because it was meant to be this thing where you just, like, look around you and go, everything, goodnight everything, okay, now I'm going to bed. And then the other one was this uh, sort of walking through the bedtime routine books, which only really work if it's, like, a character that they know doing it because children are so similar to us. Like, if you think about, like, you don't want to watch some random person's makeup tutorial. You want to watch a famous person's makeup tutorial. <laughs> and so uh, if if Elmo is going to bed on time, maybe they'll go to bed on time. But if it's just some random invented character, they're like, I don't know that person. Why do I have to follow what their life is doing? And then the third category are these sort of very touchy-feely books that are actually just intended for parents. There's a couple of them that I have, but they all end up making you, like, cry at the end of them. A lot of them are about, like, you know, how important it is to be a mother and, like, you know, you grow up and eventually I won't be here anymore. And it's all very, like, (laughs) when you're in that postpartum breastfeeding mode. (laughs) And so I didn't want to go near that one yet because I didn't feel emotionally capable of it. But one thing that I saw that was missing were children's books that sort of talked about self-reflection or talked about these sort of, like, higher-level emotional things that I feel like little kids are actually more capable of doing than they're given credit for. And I had watched the Mr. Rogers documentary at the time, too, and, like, that's one of the things that Fred Rogers was, like, so famous for and so good at was just, like, understanding that even really tiny kids have these, like, really rich emotional lives. And the only thing is, like, they just don't know how to control their emotions. There are, you know, huge emotions in these tiny people without the ability to really, like, manage them. But they do feel things as deeply as we feel, and they are able to sort of understand these sort of more abstract concepts in a way that we don't always give them credit for. So I wanted to make something that was a book that was both written for the adults and the kids and something that introduced the concept of self-forgiveness, something that was encouraging, but also talked about self-reflection and how and setting intentions, and which is such an adult behavior. Why was the concept of self-forgiveness important to you? Why did you include that in Tomorrow I'll Be Brave? I needed it like crazy when I was a kid. You know, like when I talk about abandoning sketchbooks because I had one bad drawing in it, it's because I couldn't forgive myself for like having ruined the whole thing. And, And seeing bad work in a sea of stuff that I did like, like showed me that I wasn't perfect, showed me that I was flawed, you know, and like we want to think of ourselves as like being as our best selves if we can. And I just like at the time, like I could not accept that I could fail. You know, like failure was just like if I failed once, I was a failure. And I wanted to write something for kids that struggled with that too. Kids that saw failure not as part of the growth process, but as a thing that defined them. Because failure shouldn't define you. That should help reconfigure you and, and help you move forward. But I think so many of us fail at something and we feel like it'll be our legacy that we failed at that one thing, even tiny kids, you know. How much involvement have your children had in the content and the creation of your books? I was definitely beta testing a lot on Ramona when she was little. I printed out like physical copies of the book. I got a blurb copy of it. And I was like, hey, Ramona, let's read this awesome new book together that mommy made. But she was so not interested. And I think part of it was because I was too much of a pusher. And then the other part is that she was such a unique little kid and was so interested in like a lot of other random stuff 
that it didn't end up being a book for her. My son, when he came along, he was so into it. Like, it got released when he was maybe, like, a year and a half old or something. And he was just obsessed with the book and wanted me to read it to him a lot. And he loved all the pictures and the color especially. But Ramona at the time, like, just to give an example, what she was really interested in wasn't actually me reading her picture books. She wanted me to tell her a story, in like, quote, unquote, that was a made-up story and would always be, like, a very procedural story. So she'd say, you know, tell me a story where Ramona gets hurt or tell, tell me a story where Ramona gets sick. And then I would try to resolve the story and be like, oh, and then we go to the doctor and then she gets better. She doesn't get better. And I'm like, and well, then we go and try we different. We try this medicine. She doesn't take the medicine. Well, then we go to the hospital and we strap her down and they force her to take the medicine. <laughs> and the medicine doesn't work. And like she would just keep me like wouldn't let me end the story as a happy ending. And then the final result would be like, and then Ramona dies. (laughs) (laughs) And she'd be like, okay, good night, you know, and that would just be the end of it. So, like, if you read Tomorrow, I'll Be Brave, like, a kid that's really interested in exploring, like, what happens when you get a sickness you can't cure, it's not really, uh, it's not the same content. After you've had your children, I know that your postpartum hormonal shift um, was really impactful to you. Um, You said it was long-lasting. It manifested differently at different times. Sometimes it was crippling anxiety and all-day-and-night looping thoughts. Other times it was really classic depression system symptoms like being tired all the time or not being able to derive joy from things that previously made you happy. How have you managed through having such a big career, having three small children, and writing books? Well, the thing that I'm really grateful for, and this is something that I feel like is kind of specific to illustration, is that designers, when they work on projects, it's a lot of these, like, huge long-term projects. You know, so it's one client is taking up all of your work for eight or nine months. So at the end of the year, you have, like, two or three case studies to show, something like that. As an illustrator, I can take on, or a lettering artist, I can take on work where it's like 24 hours or a week or whatever. And at the end of the year, if I'm really busy, I could have a, a huge range of different kinds of projects. So during the times when I'm struggling personally or, you know, am on maternity leave or I'm sick or whatever, I can't produce at the same level that I could normally produce, but it still looks as though I'm producing pretty high. Just because if you put out 10 projects into the world annually, it looks like you're just totally killing it. And 10 projects for me, like I could do 10 projects simultaneously in one month if I was really working 50 hours a week, like, or 80 hours a week, like I used to. So now I just, I I actually have a pretty reasonable work schedule. I probably work 35 hours a week, something like that, when I'm actually full-time working. Right now I'm still semi-part-time. So I'm in the sort of like 25 to 30 hours a week world. And I've just been able to make it work because I've been more efficient at what I'm doing just because I have more experience doing it. And I also take on projects that are I know I can do. You know, in in that time, if someone approaches me and is like, hey, we have this incredibly high-pressure job in which you're allowed to do anything that you want and we're going to do a huge profile on you at the end of it, and then you have to do a live drawing on a mural in front of a bunch of famous people, I'll probably say no to that project (laughs) while I'm, like, in postpartum depression mode and be like, this sounds like a great project for somebody that has all of their shit together right now. Instead, I'm going to do the book cover where they're asking me to do exactly what I know how to do that's based on two or three projects that I've done before 
hour and I could just sit down and work and do it. And it's not going to be the most thrilling project in the world, but it also is going to be totally fun and enjoyable for me to work on. How did you get over the postpartum depression? Is it just a hormonal change? It's just a hormonal change. I didn't understand it really until after my son. So with my daughter... I thought I was going absolutely crazy because no one told me that you could get postpartum depression months after having a baby. So, like, even all the literature and stuff from the hospital, I've since talked to the hospital that I gave birth at about this. And this is one I'm on this, like, major crusade about it where I'm probably going to – I'll probably get back into my micro website educational, (laughs) like, world for a minute because any woman that is going through this process – Check with your doctor and check with the hospital about what they have in their literature about postpartum depression because oftentimes they don't mention that it happens anytime after birth. Usually it's like, oh, if you have it right after birth and it only lasts for a short period of time, it's baby blues. If you have it and it lasts for six to eight weeks or more, it could be postpartum depression. But what they don't say is you can get postpartum depression anytime and they, they think it's like up to two years after the baby's born because of hormonal shifts. So it can start at any time. And when I had my daughter, it started around four or five months postpartum, but I didn't really notice it then. I just kind of felt a little like weirdsies and I was like, oh, maybe I'm being fertile again or something. Maybe it's like early period stuff. And then um, when I weaned her when she was nine months old, that's when it really hit and I got like horrible anxiety. It was super debilitating and it lasted for a solid five months And so I had it in my head after I had her that I was like, oh, okay, when I get postpartum, it lasts for five months because I didn't actually count the earlier stuff as part of it. So when I had my son, I was really like bracing myself like, oh, once I wean, I'll have this like four or five months of really intense anxiety and then it'll be over. But I weaned him earlier at six months and then it lasted the same amount of time. Like it went to 14 months with him. So it lasted like 10 months with him. And I then I had a better understanding afterwards of just like, oh, okay, so I just really have to take care of myself and be careful and treat myself with respect and care during this whole period up until about 14 or 15 months. And that's when I can start being more aggressive about work stuff again or, you know, anything else. And until then, I just have to forgive myself if I get overwhelmed or if I don't feel capable of doing something or if I just need to take a day off or if I need to go get a massage or do a bunch of soul cycle classes or whatever. Thank you for being so open about this. I think that there's so much shame involved in people being honest about not being perfect, especially with somebody like you who always wants to be the best they could possibly be, to be this candid about our emotional health, I think, is so critical right now. Well, I think, too, I feel very blessed and just very lucky that this is a temporary thing in my life. You know, like, postpartum is super hard. I'm in it a bit right now, but it's been so much better this time. And, like, there's two things that have super affected it. One, I completely gave up caffeine. So I can't even drink decaf, like, because there's too much caffeine in it. I can, like, sense the caffeine in decaf, and it makes me spin out. So I don't drink any caffeine at all, uh, which is hard when you're not sleeping very much. Uh, And then the other thing is I started integrating, like, really high-intensity cardio into my week, and now I, like, have to do it. It's, like, like medicine for me. And so if I do that and I can stay consistent on it, then it's all very manageable. But if I let that slide, then I start getting the looping thoughts and and just feel sort of down and, and crazy again. 
But everyone loves sort of like a hero's journey, you know, where they're like, oh, I here was a a big hill that I had to climb, and then I climbed it, and then I was over it, and look at me, victory. And to me, that is why I feel comfortable talking about it, because I've been able to have that, because there's a period in which I am over it, you know? But people that struggle with mental health all the time, they never get to have that hero's journey. It's, It's just always a struggle. It's always something you have to stay on top of. You're always on the uphill part of the climb. And it's so much harder for them. And I totally understand how people don't want to share because it makes people really uncomfortable when they don't know what stage of your like life you're at or they don't know how capable you are because people make a lot of assumptions about you and about what your life is like when you're a parent or when you are open about having struggles with mental health. And I noticed it with my daughter when I when I came back to work after her, like even just posting too much about her on Instagram, all of a sudden, like all of my client work dried, dried up because everyone thought that I was just being a mom full time and wasn't working. Or people made a ton of assumptions that I was working from home. I still get that now. Like I have an office that I'm still paying for but not going to right now because <laughs> – I'm I'm building out a new office. But um, I think as a woman, if you have children and you're freelance, everyone just assumes that you work from home. And people are really surprised when I'm like, no, I, I have a full office that I go to every day. Like I have this is a real job for me. Not that working from home isn't a real job, but, you know, like that I got sort of downgraded, quote unquote, by having kids to being much more of a loose freelancer versus a studio owner. How do you counter that? How do you set people straight? Part of it is actually I've had to be so much more conscious of how I present myself online. Like if I do post stuff about family, I'll post it to Instagram stories instead of to my main feed because like then it's all temporary and people can see the, you know, all the bumps and ugly parts and but also all the pretty parts in the main feed. And then I tend to archive family stuff on Instagram a lot faster. So if I post anything about the baby or, you know, anything that's going on with them, I'll archive it like a couple months later. And just trying actually to remember to post about the creative stuff that I'm doing because truthfully, like, my work is is a big part of my life. I care a lot about the work that I do. But of course, I don't care about it more than I care about my family and my kids. And sometimes it can be hard to, like, want to prioritize that in how you present yourself to the world just because, like, these there are these two really huge parts of my life. And that one is not stronger than the other one at this point. But I have to remember, oh, yeah, that defines me in my creative career. And so I should probably, like, put all those projects online that I've been sitting on forever. Well, one of the projects that I'm really excited about is your brand new book. You followed up Tomorrow I'll Be Brave with Tomorrow I'll Be Kind, which is just out now. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Like your first book, the main text is a poem, which means, once again, your illustrations are a big, big part of the story. Why the word kind? So when I was working on Tomorrow I'll Be Brave... I actually had this huge bank of words that I was working with, and I was like, oh, man, maybe I could do a series, maybe do whatever. And so I started organizing them into, like, different lists because I knew I could only do – I wanted to do seven um, words for whatever reason. I feel like – I forget what I even came up with as the reason. Like Like the dwarves? Seven days a week (laughs) or something. I don't know. And so I limited myself to these seven words. And then I just had too many words. They were so they were so good. There were so many different words I wanted to illustrate. And as I started to sort of, like – 
figure out which ones worked with what, these two camps started to emerge. And there was the the brave words, the words that were all uh, very much just about, like, taking care of yourself and preparing yourself for the world and making your own life better. And then there were the words that were about you helping everyone else around you, like all the words that were about you making the world better instead of just your own life. And so brave and kind kind of happened simultaneously. I wrote brave first and just sort of left the words for kind on the back burner and then started writing kind after brave was done, obviously. And uh, then it became such a harder project because I didn't I didn't realize how different they would be as books because they follow a similar format and like the rhyming is similar, the characters are the same. It even concludes with a similar stanza. But what's really changed about it is the language is so much less direct. Like it's it's more abstract because the words are more abstract. When you talk about kindness, when you talk about generosity, the more direct you are with the language, the more preachy it sounds. So I didn't want it to sound like a book about being a polite child as written by an adult. You know, I wanted it to really feel like it was something that helped the kids feel like they wanted to be better from within. And it was really just about like lighting that fire from within rather than putting a constraint on people to like fit in society. Um, And so then because the words had to be like the language had to be much more like soaring and high level, the illustration had to be way more direct. So with Brave, I could just show, like, for strong, I could show one thing. And it, and that was fine because you sort of know, like, what it means to be strong and you can interpret strength in other ways. But with kind and generous and everything, I wanted to show a lot of realistic examples of, like, here is how this applies to your life because the language wasn't doing it. And that's something that is really awesome being an author-illustrator because – I get to know that I can fill in the blanks of my writing with the illustration versus people that are just children's book authors working with other illustrators. It is a like a partnership when they do it, but I think a lot of children's book authors end up having to be much more direct in their language and like paint a picture with the words, whereas I could just use the pictures to paint the picture. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things I like about doing visual essays. I can always edit to fit the creative constraints that I have. Was this book prompted in any way by a lack of kindness that you were witnessing in the world? I mean, it felt like the timing of it was pretty perfect. I definitely made a lot of jokes about sending it to every person in Congress. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) But um, no, I think like it actually, I think there's more of a tie-in to just all of the tools and things that I was learning in therapy, honestly, because... You know, I went to therapy after because of the postpartum, because I needed to figure out a way to not feel like I was in crisis mode all the time. Um, And then I was in weekly therapy for three years and ended up it was so good for me. And I feel like it's improved like every relationship in my life. And I wasn't totally aware of a lot of like destructive behaviors that I was doing that were all really like subtle things that were, you know, undermining the good parts of relationships. And There's so much that you learn through going through that process that's just very seemingly basic stuff that we just have a really hard time internalizing. And with the kindness book, I feel like there were a few things that kind of made it into the book that I was specifically sort of like learning on my own. Like what? So in the generous spread, which um, on that spread, it's just the word generous. And then a parent bunny is like giving the child bunny gifts for their birthday. But then the one that follows it is uh, we all have ways of giving back and gifts that we can share. And there's different examples of ways to show your love to people through giving or through other things. And I was like really obsessed with the love languages at that point. So if you actually look at that spread, 
all five love languages are represented in the illustrations just because that really blew my mind like learn like it actually understanding that people want to feel love in different ways and they want to express love in different ways and so you shouldn't like undermine someone's version of expressing love because it's not the, the way that you want to feel love you should just have a, a conversation about it what is your love language my love languages, gifts are actually kind of at the bottom of my love languages. So um, I always forget all five of them, like when I actually have to talk about it in conversation. But at the very top are sort of like just time, like spending time together. Time is huge for me. Acts of service are also really high, which is when people do things like chores and stuff for you or like help you in subtle ways like that. That's like a huge show your love thing for me. There's one more, but, like, the physical touch and gifts are actually kind of at the bottom. For me, it's more just about, like, time spent and, like, having people do random menial task things for me. That makes a huge—like, whenever somebody takes a a weight off my shoulders, it it makes me feel really good. Jessica, are you going to do anything more with the little characters that you've created in your books? The bunny, for example. Do you ever foresee having any kind of uh, merchandise that you can also sell? Oh, I definitely—well, I made a bunny uh, that I did all on my own. I worked with a company in Canada that actually works with a lot of Comic-Con people. Um, So I made a physical bunny, and that was really fun, Um, and I would totally do that again. I also, while I was here in New York, had a meeting with a, a licensing rep. Um, about talking, a licensing agent, about talking about doing a lot more work with the characters and with that that sort of side of my work. So that would be really fun to do. I also feel like um, I'd love to do a series of kind of individual board books about the different words. So right now, like the Tomorrow I'll Be Brave and Tomorrow I'll Be Kind, you know, you get the seven different words in each one, and it gets fairly deep into what those things are. But I just could see these like little sets of books that are like all the ways I'm kind, all the ways I'm generous. And it gives even more concrete samples for like a younger audience and I had this like Beatrix Potter uh, board book set when I was a kid that was this like little, little tiny board book set. And I was so obsessed with it. And I just want an excuse to make little tiny books. <laughs> well, this sort of leads me to my last question, which was that I understand in college you worked on a board game as part of a project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering if we'd ever see that. Oh, man, I really want to make that thing real. I do. I actually, it's so funny. I contacted um, Max Temkin at some point, who's one of the Cards Against Humanity folks. I was like, I really need to scheme on you with this board book. And then I also contacted my friend Adam Lissagor, who runs like Sandwich Video, and he does a lot of like funny commercials and things like that. I was all set on like, I'm going to do this. This is my Kickstarter. I've never done a Kickstarter. I'll do it for the board game. But then like board games are so much more complicated than anything in the whole world if you want people to play them more than once and have it be just like more than just a novelty thing so for people that don't know it was a board game about divorce called pack your baggage (laughs) and it was a negative point system where like you wanted to have the least amount of emotional baggage at the end of the game and the whole point was just to like move away from your parents house (laughs) Uh, but it's really it was really funny like whenever I present about it I get so many like kind of groany laughs from the crowd because it's it's dark humor and whatnot too so I definitely feel like it will have a future life but it's been almost 15 years now so I gotta do it at some point if I'm gonna do it absolutely well Jessica you could do anything (laughs) thank you so much for joining me here today on design matters and congratulations on your beautiful new book tomorrow I'll be kind thank you 
you so much. You can find out more about Jessica Hish on her website, jessicahish.is. And you can find all of her books, including Tomorrow I'll Be Kind, wherever fine books are sold. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. <laughs>